0: Hello again, and welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing, presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I am the founder and CEO of Mara Poling. I am happy to be with you today to talk about an interesting topic, and that is how can you earn 12% cash or better? Now, we're not going to have a theoretical discussion or a here's some strategies you could employ that might get you to this level. We're going to talk about project that we have uh, in our portfolio today that is cash flowing at 12% uh, and actually rising. So it's going to be a good case study to talk about the things that we have done to uh, get this asset in this position and what it means to cash flow at that kind of rate. Now, one of the reasons I thought it might make some sense to talk about 12% cash flow is I know from a lot of the conversations I've had with many of you that have reached out to us, cash flow is a critical metric uh, for many of you. Uh, it certainly is for everyone that invests in multifamily real estate. Uh, I know for a lot of folks, though, it's it's the benchmark of whether or not an investment's a good investment, in particular if you can get into the, the double digit range. So we want to talk about how, how that occurs. Um, I did just mention that uh some of that's from some exchanges with a few of you you can reach out to me at pat at marapoling.com m-a-r-a-p-o-l-i-n-g.com i'd be more than happy to chat with you or answer your questions via email if you shoot me an email i'll respond and uh, in the link to my signature you'll find a, a link to my calendar and you can get some time with me happy to chat with you enjoy those conversations Those of you that have taken advantage of that, uh, welcome. Glad to have you back. And I also would encourage you to visit our learning center at marapolling.com. There's a lot of great material there, in particular material around a number of the strategies that I'll talk about today that we implemented in order to get to this 12% cash flow number. One last item that I will mention, and if my lawyer was sitting here to my right, he would be tapping me on the shoulder saying this. Obviously, uh, this is a case study about an asset we currently have today. Uh, No one should draw any conclusions about future performance of any investment uh, with us or with anyone else based on past performance. So, uh, if you have interest in learning more about investing in the fund and becoming part of the Mara Polling client family. I'd be happy to chat with you and share with you the performa for the fund, and then we can talk about financials and what that looks like for you. But today we're going to talk about 12% cash flow that's actually happening on an asset and how did that occur. So this is for the recently completed quarter. Uh, So first quarter of 2019, not sure when you might be listening to this. If you're uh, part of the live audience, it just occurred. Uh, for those of you that might be listening to this a little ways down the road, uh, maybe date de- a little distance uh, from the first quarter. So we wanna talk about how that occurred. How do you get to 12%? Well, I can tell you a couple things. One, you don't start at 12%, at least not with the conservative investment strategy that we employ. You can start at 12% uh, with a very aggressive type of investment, with a lot of additional risk involved. That's not what we uh, use as our strategy, nor is it something we would encourage folks uh, to do. Uh, if you're looking for a swing for the fences kind of investment, uh, then uh, have a great time. Go for it. Uh, the strategies I'm talking today probably don't apply to, um, to that. So it starts with that conservative approach. Uh, and you might be thinking for a moment, why am I talking about being conservative? when I'm talking about a relatively high uh, rate of cash flow. And it really comes from this, and that is we're, we're very conservative in terms of how we look at acquiring assets, in terms of how we operate those assets, in terms of how we would envision exiting those assets. And we would encourage uh, those of you that are getting a start on your own to do this kind of work, or that are looking for an investment with a firm like Mara Poling, or if you're gonna talk to us, that you be looking for how your investment is protected. What's the downside risk? If it's in that 50-50 range, in other words, there's a 50% chance that you might be a little too optimistic and things will be worse, and maybe there's a 50% chance that things will be better, that, in our mind, isn't a really good risk position to be in. What we like to do is we like to play in the 80-20 arena. And what that means for us is we want to move off of center and we want to have that midpoint, that median, be closer to a spread between 80% and 20%, meaning that there's a 20% chance of a downside risk of of us having been too optimistic on some uh, variable and an 80% chance that we were uh, under-targeting and that we could actually overperform. What that looks like is, for example, with uh, rent growth, we might identify in a value-add position that uh, the market has um, $150 of rent movement available, and we might target $100 or maybe something even less. Uh, We might do something similar in capital. We might identify that maybe it only takes $6,000 $6,000 a door to do the work, and we might budget $7,000 a door to do the work. So we'd put a number of um, elements in place that would be conservative uh, from that standpoint. On this particular asset, that's exactly what we did. The underwrite was for about $70 a door in rent movement from this particular uh, value-add equation. We're seeing north of $100, which is a good example of the distance between what an underwrite does and what the actual direction to an operations team is. We may underwrite, again, 60, 70 cents on the dollar in terms of what the delta is to market rents. That's not the direction, obviously, we give the team to go out and underperform the market. We want to go out and be competitive in the marketplace. Um, And we may or may not get all the way there, but we want to be in a position where, again, there's only a 20% chance that we might miss our number and a much higher chance, obviously, that we would uh, exceed. And in this particular instance, that's one of the places that we exceeded. When we underwrite for vacancy, typically we're going to underwrite at least what the current vacancy has been. Generally, we're going to underwrite a higher vacancy than that, and an incrementally higher vacancy during the first year, year and a half, two years, because of the potential turnover we'll have as we're doing the value add work at the property. This asset here is outperforming by about 500 basis points on uh, vacancy, which is fantastic. So not only are we uh, performing very well in terms of the rent side of the equation, we're performing better than plan on the vacancy side of the equation. Now, all is not rosy in the world, right? Everything doesn't work out that way. On the capital front, we're spending actually about 10% more per unit to do that work than we originally targeted. Some of that has to do with the fact that we're actually doing a little more on these units than what we originally envisioned. We've added a few elements and we're getting a really nice return out of those, so we're comfortable with that. However, in total, the capital budget for this asset, which involves some other work that we were doing, uh, we've actually made uh, some savings elsewhere. So we're net positive in terms of capital. So we're underrunning on the capital side of the equation as well. Likewise with operating expenses, that's another component that you're going to want to look at is um, how do you perform on operating expenses? So we're going to underwrite Uh, fairly conservatively in terms of what the expenses are going to be, whether that's uh, property management expenses or utilities or taxes or any number of other uh, elements that are are, uh, potentially involved. And in most of the areas, from an operating expense standpoint, this asset has performed in line with expenses or better than plan and some of those areas are items like uh, taxes. We've performed better than taxes. We're pretty conservative when it comes to underwriting property taxes. It's an area we would certainly encourage folks to be conservative about. Um, we've also seen some uh, some uh, savings, if you will, in terms of uh, labor and uh, management expense. Uh, we've simply been able to be more efficient about how we've done what we've done there. We haven't been uh, uh, to the positive across the board. We've spent a little more on things like monthly services and some other items, but the net of all that has been a favorable variance on the operating expense side. So when you look at all of those things, our conservative strategy has worked pretty well in terms of that 20% downside risk. We've seen some downsides in terms of a few of those individual variables, but The aggregate has been uh, performance on plan and better than plan uh, in general. Now, what that positions you for when you do that is to have that upside, right? To have that 80% upside. And where we're seeing that 80% upside is on the revenue side, right? So when when we're running such a positive, favorable variance in terms of vacancy and likewise on the incremental rents that we're seeing, and the favorable variance that we're seeing on the, on the operating expense side. So when you put those two together, that's part of what drives this um, substantial cash flow that we're seeing at 12%. So the underwrite has a lot to do with it in terms of positioning. The next piece would be just simply the execution of the plan. Underwrites are great, uh, and there are many underwrites that tell you you're gonna have an opportunity to have a very successful project. I have never seen a project that underwrote poorly be able to perform well uh, because of execution. I have absolutely seen uh, assets that have had very solid underwrites but have underperformed because of execution. So execution is a bit of a one-way street. You can make the most of an asset that's a good asset you can't really take a bad asset and make it a good asset. So you want to start with a good asset, as we just described, but then you do have to focus on execution. And in this asset, again, a great example. Uh, We came out of the gate after the acquisition on this asset, very strong, uh, solid performance from the team. And then we had some challenges. Uh, We had some uh, issues in terms of some process management. It took us about – 90 days to work through all of those and get that taken care of, and with the uh, renewed focus, training, and personnel to uh, to execute the way we uh, anticipated, um, we got back on track. It took a few, a uh, couple of months uh, to recover fully, uh, and then to exceed. And performance now is not only ahead of plan today, the 12% cash flow number that we started talking about the beginning of this session, we're also net ahead since the inception of the project. By the way, that's a number I would encourage you to ask your sponsors about. Uh, If you're working with us, you will hear us talk about inception to date performance. So it's very important to understand how we're performing currently. 12% cash flow is an example, right? Sounds great. But if we underperformed for three years before this, 12% might still leave me below the line in terms of what I originally said we were gonna do, what the original underwrite was. So you wanna not only look at the current period and the year to date, you wanna look at that inception to date. And inception to date on this asset is absolutely ahead of plan. Uh, The 12% is not a short-term fluke from that standpoint. So when we look at the items I mentioned about rents uh, and occupancy, and capital and operating expenses. Uh, again, the net of all of those was uh, favorable variances. So that doesn't just affect cash. So as you recall from some of our earlier conversations, cash is a function of revenue comes in, those nice people that live in our properties write checks, and that cash comes in. And then we turn around and have a bunch of expenses we have to pay, right? So we pay the gardeners, and we pay the onsite staff, and we pay the, uh, county, the property tax money that does due them, and we pay for our insurance policies that protect uh, us and all of our investors and our tenants uh, so that everybody can sleep well at night. We have a whole bunch of money that goes out, and when we're done, we're left with net operating income. Now, that's not the cash number because we take net operating income and then we have a few more expenses we have to pay. In particular, the largest one being the debt service that we have to uh, take care of, right? So we've got a mortgage payment. Net of all of those expenses, we then have cash that's available to distribute. That's this 12% number. So let's back through that. If that's how we get to 12%, then let's go back through the equation. Well, the line items above this are, as I said, dominated by this debt service component. Well, the debt service isn't changing every month, or every quarter, or even on an annual basis. This uh, property has a fixed uh, rate and fixed term associated with it. So that's not a reason that we would be performing favorably or unfavorably relative to the underwrite. We're performing exactly the way it was underwritten because it was underwritten at the actual interest rate that we assumed the um, the asset at at that start, uh, starting point, pardon me. So it's not there. So what's the line above that? Well, the line above that is net operating income. And that's where we see the favorable variance. And that favorable variance is not only from OPEX management, right? the operating expenses having a favorable variance, meaning we've spent less than we had underwritten. It's also a function of the fact that revenues are performing well right now, predominantly because of the favorable variance on the vacancy side, also supported by the very strong rent growth we're getting from the capital improvement uh, program, the value add program. So that's the anatomy of how you get to 12%. As I said though, 12% isn't just about cash. One of the things that you see when you get cash growth like this and get wonderful cash performance is corresponding growth in equity. So essentially you're getting two bites of the apple for the same improvement. And where that comes from is this, is what drives Increased cash flow performance is an increase in net operating income because the again, the debt service is essentially fixed. Um, so there's really not any other way to move cash other than increasing net operating income. Well, these are commercial properties, right? Hundred unit, two hundred unit, four hundred unit commercial assets. And unlike, this is one of the places where, unlike the residential space some of you might be be, or might be thinking about investing in, so like a duplex or something like that, the valuations of commercial properties are a function of net operating income. So if we improve net operating income by 10%, all other things being equal, meaning cap rates or the value of a dollar of net operating income in the marketplace, All of that being equal, we'll see a 10% increase in the valuation of the asset. So if you've got an asset that's worth $5 million, you're going to see $500,000 in increased valuation because of that growth in cash flow. Because that cash flow growth is a function of the NOI growth, and it's that NOI growth that ultimately drives the equity growth as well. Not only then do you get that 12% cash increase, but you'll see equity growth move up as well. And the equity growth on this asset, which originally was underwritten at around um, 10% has uh, increased significantly and is in the neighborhood of about 13 or 14% right now. And again, driven by that growth in net operating income. So none of this is to say that that's gonna happen with every single asset. This is a, a great example. Uh, that we're happy to share with uh, with everyone of how an asset can perform when you go through the steps the way we do them and what we again what we would encourage folks to look for in terms of a conservative mindset and then a focus on execution in order to uh, to achieve these kinds of examples uh, this kind of success it won't deliver this higher than expected performance every time. Obviously, that's not the objective, right? The whole idea with this 80-20 principle and being conservative is to reduce the downside. We would be completely happy and ecstatic if we hit that midpoint where we didn't experience the 80% upside and we didn't experience the 20% downside. We were right on that, that median line that we drew. And that's great because we can sleep well at night and everybody should be happy when you can achieve that level of performance. It is more likely though that you might in fact have a few items if not a number of items that move ahead of that line in which you'll get a more positive uh, response. So when you're doing your modeling or if you're looking for an investment and you're thinking about how you can optimize returns, cash and equity growth, don't be um, don't be uh, in a position where you're going to overlook conservative investing. Conservative investing can, in fact, deliver very positive returns. And I would suggest, more importantly, it can help you sleep well at night so that you're not worried about these uh, these items. Now, all the things we've talked about here, the 80-20 process, the underwriting of assets, the uh, negotiating of the financials, to read the financials, to understand all the things we discussed, the strategies around value add, the management of, of capital and OPEX, and uh, vacancy management strategies. All of those items, there are there's material on those at the learning center at marapolling.com, M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. So go, go to the website, uh, give us a visit. There is a lot of good material there. Uh, Take a look through uh, past podcasts. Uh, You'll find some of those. Um, But the webinars that we have at the Learning Center can be very helpful, and there'll be some some visuals and such that you can get from those. If you have questions beyond the material that's there, or you'd just like to chat a little more about, okay, help me understand more of how you got 12%, or other items that might be related to that. For example, great, I'm making 12%. Am I paying tax on that whole 12%? And the answer is... You don't have to. There are absolutely strategies to use to mitigate, reduce, um, defer a significant amount of that tax exposure uh, using the techniques that we use again from our conservative investing uh, philosophy. And we'd be happy to share those with you. If you look in the past, we've got some uh, material on some prior um, podcasts that, uh, that address that. So I hope this has been valuable for you today and makes some sense. If you have questions, pat at marapolling.com. Just shoot me an email. We're going to have some some more great sessions coming up over the next uh, few weeks. We have some guests that will be joining us. We're going to talk a little more about the lending process. We are in the uh, midst of closing on a new acquisition, so we'll have some great information to share about how that process has unfolded. Uh, Some of you have taken us up on the offer to follow that along, and you've received some emails along the way. There's another update getting ready to go out this week, and uh, if you'd like to join in that, just, again, shoot me an email, and I'll I'll gladly um, add you to that. But please join us next time. Click subscribe. um, Follow us, please. And uh, I look forward to chatting with you again next week on multifamily real estate investing presented by Mara Poling.